0: Hi, and welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast from the Center of Governance and Human Rights here at the University of Cambridge. My name is Scott Novak, and I'll be your host on today's show. In this episode, we had CGHR panelist Matt Mahmoodi interview Dr. Thomas McManus, a researcher at Queen Mary University of London. Dr. Thomas McManus also leads the International State Crime Initiative, and he's been one of the few people to get access to the Rakhine State in Myanmar over recent years, where he's been studying the persecution against the Rohingya, a Muslim minority group living within the state. First, we'll listen to Matt's interview, and then discuss it with our CGHR panel. Now, over to Matt.
1: In December 2016, the UN called out Myanmar, also known as Burma, for daily reports of rape and killings of the Rohingya people. You might remember Myanmar for being home to the incumbent state Counsellor and Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi. Having rejected the use of all violence in her efforts to push the military to hand over power to a civilian government, she's been subject to much criticism on her silence on the plight of the Rohingya. I met with Dr. Thomas McManus, who did field work in the heavily restricted region of Rakhine State, home of the Rohingya. McManus is a research fellow at the International State Crime Initiative based at Queen Mary University of London.
2: The starting point is the historical persecution of the Rohingya inside Arakan State, as well as persecution of the Arakanese, the Rakhine Buddhist population.
1: Arakan refers to the former name of Rakhine state.
2: The state is known as Rakhine today, but used to be known as Arakan. And and that's why I sometimes confuse uh, the terms. Burma and
1: Myanmar are also
2: used interchangeably. So,
1: should we call it Myanmar or Burma? Though Burma is generally preferred by the democratic movement, campaigners believe that name doesn't really matter and that we should focus on the human rights atrocities solely. Historically, Rakhine State hosts a conflict between the Rakhine Buddhist majority and the Rohingya Muslim
2: minority. That is one way of doing it, is to go back into the history and seeing how these two groups ended up in this state, of uh, Arakan and how the, the Burmese central government have turned these ethnic groups against each other. And people do dip into history to get you know, to try and point to incidents. For instance, in World War Two, the Rohingya fought for the British while the Arakanese Buddhists fought for the Japanese with the Burmese military until Burma changed sides. uh, And then both groups were fighting on the same side. But there were pogroms and massacres by both sides at the time. And these are old grievances that have reemerged today. And they've reemerged in the context of Burma opening up to democracy as such, opening up to foreign investment really seems to be the the main objective. Both communities lived side by side. People we talked to talked about going to weddings, on both sides and, and going over early to prepare food because different religions and different ethnic groups ate different food and they made sure the religions had enough. They made sure the wedding ceremonies had enough types of food that would suit everybody. Um, and they would go to each other's festivals. Uh, companies were made up of both sides, um, including the other smaller ethnic groups. And really, there wasn't any serious issue until June 2012 when we saw the burning down of Rohingya villages organized by the local authorities.
1: Dr. McManus is a co-author on the 2015 report, Countdown to Annihilation Genocide in Myanmar, in which he, along with Professor Penny Green and Alicia Delacue Venning, analyze what they describe as decades-old governmental violations, revealing a bleak conclusion. The Rohingya people are gradually being decimated.
2: After those villages were burned down, about and to 150,000 Rohingya were rounded up into camps where they remain. The rest of the 1.2, 1.4 million Rohingya in the state of Arakan cannot leave their villages, can't go to work, are not allowed to go to school or do state exams, and are not allowed to move without permission, which is very difficult to get. So really, the starting point of where we are now, Notwithstanding the historical context, is the violence of 2012? I would like this intervention, UN intervention, intervention to save my people, who are killed, who are killed, and the you know genocide is there. We went to um, Sitwe, which is the capital of uh, Rakhine State. Myself and my colleague uh, Alicia Delacour venning we spent on and off three months in Sitway. We had to come out every now and again. The camps are depressing, to say the least. The people there are not allowed to work, not allowed to go to school. Their food is rationed. The houses they live in were temporary accommodation and they're completely falling down. They've no health care to speak of. Just from looking around, you can see there's, there's a level of despair. People don't see a future for themselves, so there's talk about whether they should go on boats or whether they should stay, not, work, not knowing which one is more dangerous, but knowing that both are, are extremely risky options.
1: These human rights atrocities have been occurring for decades, but they appear to only spontaneously spark critical inquiry from the media, particularly regarding the question of whether a genocide is unfolding. This, however, shouldn't be a surprise, as Rakhine State is a black hole for the media, heavily restricted, and with little, if any, media access.
2: We asked the authorities for travel authorization to go to the rest of Rakhine State, but we were refused. Even to today, Rakhine State is generally in lockdown. The only other place we were able to go to was Mraou, um, because it is a touristy kind of area, so we were able to go in there as tourists rent bikes and go and visit camps ourselves. But otherwise, the government was very keen that we didn't go anywhere. The Minister of Security and the Attorney General in discussions decided, discussions we overheard, decided not to let us go to Northern Rakhine State, because they were afraid we would talk to Kalar, which is a really derogatory term for Rohingya. So they were, they were very clear that they didn't want us talking to any of the Rohingya, basically anywhere, we managed to get into the camps without the state's help, and we but we weren't able to get outside of Sitwe without the state's help, and they weren't allowing it.
1: Recent footage has surfaced, displaying the military filming their violent treatment of the Rohingya. Why is this only blowing up now, and what might be the motivations behind the dissemination of these clips?
2: The military weren't actually involved that much. And this changed in October 2016 when military outposts and police stations were attacked in Northern Rakhine State. Details are sketchy. And as a result, the army has decided to launch a clearance operation in Northern Rakhine State. It's kind of sold to the international community as a counter-terrorism operation or a counter-insurgency operation. But there's very little evidence of a significant insurgency. And this police operation is completely disproportionate response. And according to Amnesty International and other reports from Human Rights Watch corroborate this, somewhere between 30 and 70,000 people have been driven from their Villages by these military operations. And we hear stories of the military using helicopter gunships to strafe villages to, to, to scare people out. And, and you can only imagine how scary that must be to, to, to come out of your home and to see these military gunships coming in and shooting up the place. And it's no wonder that so many people have decided to move. And this must be the objective of the government, this must be the objective of the military, is to convince the Rohingya to move on, to go somewhere else. And the worry is that the Rohingya are worrying out, running out of places to go.
1: Aung San Suu Kyi was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991 for her nonviolent struggle for democracy and human rights. She
2: is hailed as a moral leader for a long time. She has
1: promised to ensure national reconciliation and a democratic transition from the quasi-military rule of the past. As of December 2016, she's received criticism from the likes of Desmond Tutu, Malala, and the United Nations as the ongoing lack of access for humanitarian organizations and the media continues. Some have argued that her silence is a form of tacit legitimization of the crimes against the Rohingya.
2: There's definitely some level of legitimization of the persecution of the Rohingya by Aung San Suu Kyi she hasn't said anything. Um I understand, you know, being pragmatic and dealing with the military, but you can speak out, you can do things in defense of the Rohingya.
3: What's been happening there? Some people are
1: calling it ethnic cleansing. No, no, it's not ethnic cleansing. It's a uh, it's a new problem and yet it's linked to old problems as well I would like to make the point that there are many moderate Muslims in Burma who have been well integrated into our society but these problems arose last year and I think this is due to fear on both sides
2: she refuses to use the word Rohingya and has asked foreign ambassadors not to use the word the right to self-identification is a principle of international law the refusal, even, you know, never mind the legal point of view, from a moral point of view, the refusal to allow people to have their own name mentioned inside your country, really does indicate that Ansan San Suu Kyi is not a friend of the Rohingya. And in fact, must support the military operation. Otherwise we would have heard something from her.
1: And this is what the world needs to understand, that the fear is not just on the side of the Muslims, but on the side of the Buddhists as well.
3: You would accept, wouldn't you, that the vast majority of the victims of the violence have been Muslims? There is evidence that they have been systematically
1: targeted? Yes, Muslims have been targeted, but also Buddhists have been uh, subjected to violence
2: it's it's gone on too long and too many people have suffered as a result of her silence and her silence does legitimize the persecution of the rohingya she doesn't come out and say that it's wrong and condemn the actions of people so the people on the street are taking this as a green light to continue with the persecution
1: Continued denial of citizenship and a lack of access to socio-economic rights means that the Rohingya are effectively transformed into stateless people.
2: Burmese government, the Myanmar government, is clear that the Rohingya are not stateless, mm. that they're... Well, they call them Bengali. I think they mean Bangladeshi. That they're from Bangladesh. Um, and therefore... They do have a state, they just happen to be in the wrong state at the moment. And the Bangladesh government doesn't accept this description of the Rohingya people, nor do the Rohingya people themselves. So it's rendering them effectively stateless. But as for the Myanmar government's attitude to statelessness, I don't think they've even worked out what that is yet with with regard to the Rohingya. In genocide as social practice, Daniel Fehrstein lays out a framework
1: for observing the systematic and deliberate practice of genocide.
2: Fehrstein was looking at what you might call concentration camp genocides, a specific type of genocide. And he used the examples of um, Nazi Germany and Argentina to tease out these steps that must be met for a genocide to take place. And Firstein sees it as social practice, as a social process. And the reason we use that is because the legal definition is not very useful for trying to determine or predict or prevent genocide. To give you an example, we wrote to the UK government and we said that we're very concerned of an unfolding genocidal practices in Myanmar, in Rakhine State, in relation to the Rohingya. And their reply was that we cannot say it is a genocide. Only a court of law can do that. In other words, the genocide has to have already happened. Unless you can find, you know, some documentation with plans, which very rarely don't come about. Um, genocide is not usually some guy sitting at a desk with a red phone. It's, it's, it's a social practice. It's something that comes about in stages. He described a first stage as stigmatization. This is you find another, a group, uh, and you other them. Um, you, you set up an us and them dynamic. Uh, this stage involves symbolic harassment, name calling, um, and in Burma, we have people calling Muslims uh, demons, uh, all kinds of kinds of ridiculous things on Facebook. Uh, a lot of this comes from the monks. The second stage: harassment, violence, and terror. And that is when this kind of verbal harassment changes to a more physical uh, violence. In Germany, the start of this harassment was, most commentators point to Kristallnacht, the. Re- Rohingya equivalent of that was in October, well, June, October 2012, in which Rakhine Buddhists were bussed in from villages all around Sitwe. This is with the help of the village authorities. These are government authorities. They were provided, the people who were bussed into Sitwe Central were provided with catering. Breakfast and lunch was made available to them. The transport was free and they were given instructions as to where to go. So some people were to line the roads to funnel Muslims and Rohingya that would be fleeing from their villages being burnt down and other people were sent to burn down the villages.
1: Third, isolation and segregation.
2: So people were rounded up into camps. Um, some of them went willingly for their own safety, they thought. The same kind of thing we saw in Germany with Jews going to the, into the ghettos. And once you're isolated physically, you ban foreigners from coming in and you don't let people leave. And this, this completes their isolation. The fourth stage is... Systematic weakening. And that's the stage that we found the Rohingya in when we arrived. The healthcare had been removed... Uh, they weren't allowed to vote. So the right to vote and the right to politically organize and associate was removed. Uh, camp leaders were chosen by the authorities. And there's a lot of corruption at that level, which led to a a disharmony within the camps. This is again, to weaken the political organization of the group. Don't allow the kids to go to school don't allow anyone to work manage the number of calories that go in, obstruct food aid entering into the country. And this is a situation designed to weaken, uh, if not kill the Rohingya. That's when when we left, it was at that stage, and we made a report based on that. And our main concern was that we can't say for sure. But the groundwork has now been laid for the next stage, the fifth stage, which is the annihilation stage. It's the stage during which legal mechanisms might kick in. But but that is way too late for many of the people who will have died or will have been displaced already. This new round of violence, the fact that the army is now involved in clearing villages, means that we have definitely entered a new phase. And you could probably say we've started we're teetering into the annihilation stage now. We know that Firestein's
1: model is largely based on historical data. But I wonder, do you think that
2: extermination is a likely outcome today? It is one of many possible outcomes. There could be intervention at this stage. Um, the army could withdraw and the government could start seriously dealing with the issue. But the way things are going, it's very hard to be optimistic about that. Any reports that are coming out are whitewashes. The state is on complete lockdown. No journalist, academic, uh, human rights organisation, aid organisation even can get in to make determinations of the situation on the ground. So why is there this informational black hole? This is another sign. This is another um, form of denial, which implicates the government and raises the concern makes the likelihood of the annihilation stage a more real prospect. Whether it's going to happen or not, I couldn't tell you that we don't know. If you're thinking back to Rwanda and Srebrenica with
1: a sense that, gosh, history really is repeating itself, you're not alone. Given the elusive response of the United Nations, the situation does indeed paint a bleak picture for what the international community and foreign
2: governments can do to help. It's been really interesting watching the world's reaction to our report, um, to other reports, and to a kind of a generally, what's coming, becoming more accepted today is genocidal processes. When we wrote this at first, there was not many people agreed with this. But I think based on our report, and also just based on the theme of the reports coming out of Rakhine State, it seems more and more obvious to more and more commentators that we may be looking at a genocidal process. And so why has there been no reaction from the international community? Um, the United Nations. And it's, it's, it's a failure of the genocide treaty. The prevention part of it just isn't very strong. Take the example of the UK government. We say to them that we think there is a serious danger of genocide. But they're under no obligation to do anything. They're under an obligation to prevent genocide. But what does that mean? The government has decided and takes the stance that only a court can decide if it's a genocide. And it's very difficult to prevent genocide, just as it's very difficult to prevent murder by trying to prosecute someone before the crime takes place. So the the treaty has its failures, especially when it comes to prevention. That's something that needs to be seriously looked at. Um, the UN are in a very difficult position in Rakhine State. It's one of the only places in the world where the UN are hated more than uh, the government persecuting the people. But while we were there, we would see signs with the UN with a big, big red X through it, or, or a UN logo with blood uh, on the logo, um, because the UN are somehow causing um, the violence, um, and this is a very successful campaign by the central Burmese government to deflect attention, um, from the, from the real perpetrators towards the international community, towards the United Nations. Um, another group that up there with the United Nations for most hated international organizations for the Rakhine people is the, um, the OIC it's been difficult for the un they um at times they are too close to the local government at times they have refused to use the Rohing- word rohingya themselves and then we have un officials who are based in burma and and have knowledge of rakhine state releasing statements saying that the situation is getting better They before the violence of october 2016, we had a statement from the UN saying that there had been no more violence and therefore uh, the situation in Rakhine State is much better. This is an unbelievable statement. And the fact that 140,000 people are kept in what can be described as concentration camps, to say that there's no violence involved in keeping this amount of people inside a camp and um, systematically weakening them through healthcare and uh, lack of political organization. To say there's no violence is almost a ridiculous statement by the United Nations. And a lot of people were very surprised to see this coming out. So the UN have either willingly or incompetently decided not to fight for the Rohingya's cause. We need to apply pressure. Pressure needs to be applied to Aung San Suu Kyi's administration, to the Burmese military. Pressure needs to be applied to allow observers into Rakhine State, first of all, to restore healthcare, to restore education, uh, and to move to restoring community, to restoring citizenship to the Rohingya, uh, and their right to vote should be restored. And we will need to start thinking about sanctions, we need to start thinking about reapplying the sanctions that were prematurely, it seems, dropped by the Obama administration. We do have renewed interest in the Rohingya situation at the moment from uh, international press. It's really difficult though. As an informational black hole, any videos or any photographs that come out are extremely hard to verify. there's a high level of altering of photographs from both sides to try and make things look better or worse. And who knows what the you know, if, if, if the Burmese military's objective is to to scare the Rohingya out of the state, then releasing the videos makes sense from that point of view. If they're concerned about pressure from the international community, then releasing video of their own violence against the Rohingya doesn't make any sense. But maybe that's not a concern. Maybe the military don't feel there is any pressure that can be brought to bear upon them. They've managed to survive for 60 years in isolation, um, and maybe they're quite happy to go back to that situation. But releasing releasing videos showing state terror on behalf of the Burmese military makes sense. It's, it's all, all terrorist groups will release videos of their terror in order to increase the fear factor.
1: Thank you to Dr. Thomas McManus for taking the time to talk to us about this incredibly topical issue. Thank you very much. If you're interested in reading his report, you can download a PDF version for free on the International State Crime Initiatives website. Back to you, Scott.
0: And now we are joined by our regular CGHR panel today. We have Matt, of course, and we also have Talia and Eva. Welcome everyone. And Matt, thank you so much for going out to London and doing that interview. It was wonderful.
1: Yeah, some real good insights from there. It was a pleasure talking to Thomas.
0: So I think, Eva, you had a question that you wanted to ask Matt and the rest of the group as well, concerning Aung San Suu Kyi.
4: Yeah, sure. I, I kind of just want to address the elephant in the room, I suppose, in the international discourse with Myanmar, and specifically in the context of Winja. Here we have Aung San Suu Kyi, icon of Burma, icon of the human rights movement, 15 years in house arrest, Nobel Prize winner. And certainly, when I visited Myanmar last summer, cafes, guest's house, streets, they were just adorned with pictures of of this leader. And in that sense, I suppose she isn't your conventional dictator. But more widely, this isn't really your prototypical genocide in the sense of Rwanda, where 800,000 people were killed within the space of one or two months, or the Srebrenica massacre. This rather is a protracted process, Dating back some 30 years. And it's a process that Thomas's study describes as a systematic weakening of the Rakhine state, Rowinja. So, with that in mind, I just wonder like, why isn't this front page news?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question we should be talking about, right? Uh, Thomas mentions news cycles as a way of talking about when attention is paid to the situation in Myanmar, something slips, it'll be footage from the military. Or it'll be footage from a civilian. It slips through the internet and by the virtue of, you know, the right people liking and sharing it, it gains traction and becomes viral. And then suddenly you have attention. Um, I suppose the, the problematic aspect of paying attention to what's happening in, in Myanmar, like in a sustained manner is probably by the virtue of like, how do you identify genocide before genocide happens?
4: Sure. And. In international law, we are provided a definition of genocide and we find that in the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide, notably drafted in the aftermath of the Holocaust, which the international community said, you know, this is never going to happen again. And if we look at Article 2 of that convention, it provides that there are two elements to the crime of genocide. Number one, the mental element, which is the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group. And also the physical element, which includes elements such as killing members of an ethnic or religious or national group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of that group, or imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And the situation that we are seeing here in Myanmar against the is checks all of the boxes. So I suppose I just wonder, I mean, there's been no resolutions passed by the General Assembly, Security Council, etc. on this matter, as far as I'm aware, but Scott, do you?
0: I would actually, I think I disagree with you when you say it checks all the boxes because I, what I noticed in the interview was there was a definite hesitation to call this a genocide. And I think we should take note of that only because what is happening to the Rohingya in Myanmar definitely fits all the boxes for like discrimination for second class citizenship. So that definitely fits like they're not equal citizens sure. in this state but that does not meet the grounds of like, they're not preventing births within the group.
4: I read that birth certificates are no longer granted to members of the Rwanda community. So that might fulfill the criteria, but I hear what you're saying.
0: Yeah, so this gets back to the problem, though, of like, with genocide, as you brought up the International Convention on Genocide, but that only allows intervention once it's happening. Like. But then, of course, by definition, it's already happening. So you failed to prevent it. Basically, this international convention allows states to prevent the further enactment of genocide, but it doesn't allow them, by definition, to prevent the start of genocide.
3: In that sense, Dr. McManus said the legal definition of genocide might actually not be the most helpful in understanding what's going on in Myanmar. It recalls to me the most recent film coming out, Denial, which tells the story of a prominent historian of the Holocaust, Deborah Lipman, and how she was taken to court by David Irving, who's a prominent Holocaust denier. And even in this trial, kind of 50, 60 years after the Holocaust, it's very well documented, survivors have spoken. There is no document that makes it clear that kind of Hitler says, yes, genocide, good, signed. So if we can't find that, 50, 60 years later, with hundreds of historians having looked into it, the likelihood of being able to find a similar document in somewhere like Myanmar with such restricted access kind of just points to how impossible the legal definition would make it to prevent a genocide under those terms. Absolutely.
1: And you find that, for example, Thomas will refer to civilians telling him that actually military officials, but you know, low low ranked enough so that no paperwork would be would be necessary, would unofficially walk into villages and essentially tell people to obstruct other folks from other villages, uh, Rohingya people from other villages, from fleeing You know, their burning houses or from being given access to, uh, to transportation. And so there's these unofficial mechanisms through which you're effectively uh, allowing genocide, but again, it's not documented anywhere, right? And if it's not documented anywhere, it's very limited how much like the voice of any single civilian is going to have a bearing.
3: And that lack of documentation brings me back to our earlier discussion with Dr. Ellen McPherson about how you do publicize and verify these human rights violations when, almost by definition, they're taking place in environments where the media doesn't have access and where you can't go in and verify it using traditional mechanisms. Yeah,
1: so uh, that is a really interesting and important point, especially in the face of these these videos coming out from the military, because even though we've got footage, from the military supposedly torturing rohingya people we don't know their motivations behind uploading those videos and, and, that so, and that
0: doesn't necessarily mean genocide because they're saying oh these are terrorists they're attacking us we have to defend ourselves this is state defense that's not necessarily you can't
1: prove
0: that that's genocide unfortunately exactly. so
1: one of the aspects mm-hmm. is selling it as terrorists essentially getting what they deserve if you will though we need to be careful with that and the other aspect is Are these whistleblowers who are uploading these videos to call attention Mm. to some of the atrocities that are happening, or are they perpetrators who are uploading these videos to give off a sense of international community? We don't really care. We have our sovereignty and we have the right to treat people who we consider not of our citizenship the way that we want.
0: And I think this is a key point, the sovereignty of the state. Now, the UN, of course, is built to respect the sovereignty of all states and uphold international boundaries. But in order to find out whether there is genocide occurring, there has to be access for journalists or for peacekeepers sent by the UN to monitor the situation. But in order for that to happen, the state of Myanmar has to agree to allow it to happen. What are her motivations on San Suu Kyi for not speaking out, for not allowing human rights organizations and journalists into the state? Um, Because I think that's quite a complex question that's worth examining in order to maybe explain this a little more is that the military um, still gets 25% of seats in parliament, and it can declare emergency rule and take power back from the civilian government at any time. And so perhaps we're giving too much autonomy to Aung San Suu Kyi in terms of what she can do?
4: I think you're right in saying it is a very complex situation and it's quite a delicate matter for her. I think we need to take account of the geopolitical position of Myanmar. And in that respect, I want to talk about something that Professor Saskia Sanson of Columbia University has raised. And that is that religion and ethnicity is only one part of what explains the forced displacement and decimation of the Rohingya. And she points to the massive rise of corporate acquisitions of land for mining, timber, agriculture, water, and that the military has been grabbing huge stretches of land from smallholders since the 90s. Myanmar is situated between resource-hungry states like India and China, who since 2010 have been sweeping in and investing heavily in the state, ignoring the situation on the ground and taking resources to further their international capital. In that sense, Professor Sanson concluded that the international focus on religion has overshadowed the vast land grabs that have affected millions, including the Rohingya. So there's probably some economic consideration or motivation behind Aung San Suu Kyi's resistance to proclaiming anything about the discrimination Meringa are facing right now or doing anything about it. So I don't think it's just a strict, it's not even strictly a human rights narrative. We have to take account of broader factors as well. Given that really complex interplay
3: of different incentives and factors that you describe, Eva, I wonder if I could ask you, Matt, having had that interaction with Dr. McManus, who's had this first-hand experience of what's going on, how do you see the future of this conflict playing out in Myanmar?
1: So I think there are quite a few different ways and directions in which this could go. What I think is the fear is that this will eventually lead into the annihilation stage. We'll see the Rohingya population essentially eliminated or drawn out, leading into the sixth stage, which is, you know, by process of normalization, it's called the symbolic enactment in which A new society emerges where the victimized group has been removed from existence and the public narrative. So although that's uh, not a future that any of us would like to see played out, understanding and being aware of of the complex dynamics, both economically, religiously, politically that are playing out and that Aung San Suu Kyi has to be aware of, uh, it's difficult not seeing this slipping under the carpet and just sort of happening on its own accord. If we are to prevent anything like this, I think the human rights narrative has to become the doctrine. Like that is the sort of approach that we need to take to it, in which we uh, understand that and and, and and respect that Aung Sang Su Chi was given the Nobel Prize for her human rights efforts. She was given the Nobel Prize for her efforts in nonviolent promotion of democracy. And so we ought to say, well, then that is a responsibility of yours to move forward along the same lines, along the same narrative that you were given that award for.
4: Yeah, and I think actually coming back to your question, Scott, about why Aung San Suu Kyi hasn't done more about the situation is there is a desire to save face and show Myanmar as a state kind of really coming into its own. I mean, that
0: is one interpretation. And this is, of course, speculation on both of our ends, but I could also see a more Benign's not the right word, but I guess a less selfish reason for her actions, and that is she spent her life devoted to democracy and human rights in Myanmar, but the military still has tremendous power and can take back power from her at any time. So her power is very conditional in a way that I think some media outlets have not conveyed enough and she is definitely aware of the situation because she said show me a country without human rights issues which indicates like other countries are doing bad things so why can't we do bad things she's there's no way that she's not aware of the situation but maybe she has a lot less autonomy than we give her credit for
1: the problem is if reconciliation which is her sort of main deal becomes the normalization and the universalization of a dominant ethnic group of, or of several dominant ethnic groups and pushes out the other. And if she really becomes a part of this mechanism that is inherently unequal and which is um, authoritarian, right? In which case, Aung San Suu Kyi is just what, what can we call it? Like another, then what was the point? The car, yeah, right? exactly.
0: Yeah. It's just a new face to a yeah. old problem, whether people call it genocide or not, it is, as we've established, it is discrimination, it is at, at the very least a second-class citizenship treatment of a group of people, and unfortunately there doesn't seem to be strong incentives for the international community to act or to have grounds for acting. I guess it's up to the state of Myanmar to see where it goes from here. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Declarations. We'd love to hear any thoughts and feedback you have about this episode, so please tweet us at DeclarationsPod on Twitter and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast if you'd like to contact us. Because we are a relatively new podcast, we would also love if you took a few seconds to rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe and join us again next week, where we'll be talking about the right to privacy. Thank you for tuning in to Declarations.